Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Steven is in his tidy whities and get out of town. Uh, <laughs> his tank top, and Mr. Gao is wearing PJs that look like they belong on a sixth grader. And so the two of them come out, and Ajur and I come back, and we look at each other. We're just right outside the lobby. We're like, is it serious that we just joined this company? Yeah. At the time, Trina was 500 <laughs> employees, so it just had 75 megawatts of capacity. We were said, we either made a massive mistake, or this is going to be a wild ride. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs who are building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Today is episode 120. I just love these round numbers and milestones we keep clicking off here on Suncast. And I'm excited to share another solar founder story with you. This one in particular has been in my hit list for a long time. And it's one that was just a ton of fun to record. Andy Klump is one of the most connected and charismatic figures I have met in solar. Not only does he know and work with major industry players, but he's been a part of helping the industry mature. And as an American in China, no less, he has a unique perspective to share. You can find great founder stories just like this and other solar startup advice and the other 119 episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, please be sure to check out the Suncast Tribe where you can hit my virtual tip jar and become part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Check out the members area for that. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Solar Warriors, this is an interview I have looked forward to for a long time, mainly because it's one I really, really wanted to do in person with a good buddy that I only see usually about once a year. We have a few things in common, not the least of which that we're both proudly unemployable. So I want to welcome, I'll go ahead and welcome you to the show, Andy Klump, before I jump into your bio. Thanks for showing up, man. Nico, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I am stoked. Uh, we're sitting here in the in the sunny climes of Southern California, getting ready for Solar Power International 2018. I want to give you guys a little earful of who this man is, and I'll do so reading a bit from a bio that I have for him. I don't usually read from bios. I, usually, I like to write them, but this one was done pretty well. Andy is a recognized board advisor to the world's leading solar manufacturers, EPCs, and project development companies. Up till 2008, he was vice president of BD for Trina Solar, where he managed international growth, JV, M&A, and the signing of long-term polysilicon agreements in over nine countries. He's got experience raising capital, having done so to the tune of nearly a half a billion dollars in its IPO for Trina in 2006 on the New York Stock Exchange and subsequent follow-on offerings. He has worked in China since 03, 15 years in China. And if you've ever met Andy, he is a tall drink of water. The man must be, I don't know, six and a half feet tall. He's served in executive management roles with a number of international companies, not just Trina. He's cut his teeth and got his pedigree in some well-known universities in the USA, including an MBA from Harvard. And uh, he lives now in Shanghai with his family 
He now lives with five women and is <laughs> fluent in Mandarin. So I wish I knew Mandarin to invite you, but man, really stoked to have you on the show. Excellent. Well, once again, it's an honor to be here. So thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. Indeed. So you are uh, not only just a longtime friend, but also a listener of Suncast. So I didn't try to shake up the question regimen for you. You know the drill. I uh, love to give Solar Warriors a sense of how this all came about for you. For those who know you, Andy runs a company called Clean Energy Associates that has become the de facto for quality assurance of EPCs worldwide now uh, who seek to understand whether the vendors they're working with indeed providing not just the quality required, but the products that are on the bill of materials and the products that are on the PO and make sure it shows up as, as it was ordered and on time. And uh, hopefully I did that justice. Yes, I, I would say we, we don't just work just with EPCs, but also with developers, IPPs. In fact, our, our core client base are those long-term owners of solar and storage assets. Yeah. And so we focus not just on solar modules, but also inverters, uh, tracking systems, other BOS components, uh, as well as storage. Yeah, and it didn't come overnight building the type of reputation that would allow folks to trust you from afar. Tell me a little bit about your transition to solar. Uh, maybe what was the catalyst for getting out of your early career or careers and how you transitioned to clean energy? Yes, yeah, so I, I first uh, actually became more interested in China than I did uh, in, in uh, clean energy at the start. So I actually took a uh, trip to China really shortly before, uh, before I started my second year of uh, business school. Absolutely loved it. I said, come hell or high water, I've got to be in China. So I spent a summer in Shanghai in 2002, and then 2003, I took a job with Dell Computer. Mm. But I kind of transitioned from high tech to clean tech when I got to know one of the investors in Trina, and they invited me out to Changzhou to meet Mr. Gao and a few other members of the board. And I remember uh, taking a long two and a half hour trip to the train station in China. There was no one there to pick me up. Yep. I had to That's call for the course of Trina. <laughs> exactly. And it was early days of Trina. This is yep. not the Trina Solar that people know today. That's right. Trina Solar was a tier three in manufacturer. Fact, it, wasn't, it wasn't called Trina Solar. It, it, it was called Trina Solar, but was it? it was it, they had a different, a different, different brand. Ugly, ugly yep. green brand, and it was a totally different company. But they had 75 megawatts of modules, uh-huh. ingots, and wafers. And so they didn't even have cell production in-house. But they had a, a very passionate board, and uh, I met Mr. Gao, and I was uh, was really amazed at his foresight. Having spoken Mandarin, and he yeah. was not speaking English, it was it was just an all Mandarin dialogue with him. Wow. But I was uh, I really was uh, was impressed with his uh, his vision for the company as well as for the industry, and so. Did you, this idea, this so you're coming, out, you're coming out of Harvard MBA. You've got the ability to evaluate companies at a core, at a structural level. Did you evaluate other opportunities in the solar industry or just jump straight into Trina? So the interesting thing is I did not. I actually was out to research as many companies as possible and really go into it. And there was so little coverage of the sector. There were no analyst reports. SunTech had just, just gone public in late 05. Yeah. So there are a bunch of no-name companies out there. And actually, in fact, I remember... When I graduated from Harvard Business School, one of my teachers told me, whenever you see a certain number of Harvard Business School graduates go into an industry, that's exactly the time you want to leave. Yeah. And so my whole thought was, oh, geez, if there are a bunch of HBS MBAs in this industry, I'm not going to go. But I, I looked to the alumni database, 80,000 alumni, and I said, okay, I hope there's less than one or two or 300. In the end, there was fewer than seven. No so way. I said, okay, this is a safe industry that's under the radar screen. And I was just a, a passionate environmentalist. So I said, I've, I've got to go for it. So I did not go and interview anywhere else. 
I just said, based on my interview with Mr. Gao and the investors, I'm going to go forward with this. Tell me about passionate environmentalists. What did that mean to you in 2006? So I never incorporated environmental professions in my in my yeah. career, but I uh, always, as a kid, you know, just loved being outdoors. Uh, growing up, my uh, father was a, a taxi driver, still was up until a couple years ago, uh, driving a cab for 44 years. And so we never had a lot of money uh, growing up. But uh, the one thing I did learn is I learned how to sell Boy Scout pizzas, and that's what allowed me to go to summer camp for free. So oh, wow. every year I went camping for uh, for a week, and that was, uh, that was my one chance to go to the great outdoors. I, I still remember is being four, five, six years old, going with my mom, collecting aluminum cans, and that was my first, uh, that was first, my first business. First little business. First was, dose uh, of was being just, unemployable. Exactly. <laughs> well, so I've always had that passion for the outdoors. And that's uh, when I said, wow, I can actually have a, a business career and be aligned with, uh, with something that's good for the environment. I'm like, done. Sign me up. Beyond cans and pizzas, did you have any other side businesses in high school? Did, did, uh, I did. did. In fact, um, when I was 12 years old, I grew up in a, a nice Catholic family. You know, uh, and my parents really didn't have anything. But the one thing they did buck out for was just to scrape enough coins out of the couch to, to pay for a Catholic education. But yeah. my mom came to me actually in, in tears when I was in seventh grade and said, you know, we can no longer afford oh, to no pay. Way. And so if you want to go to a private high school, you need to help, and I don't want wow. don't want you to do this. But uh, it, it it kills me to do it. But um, I said, no, nah, that's that's fine. And the next day, it was a spring day. I bought a uh, a piece of uh, poster board for thirty nine cents, and I started cutting out business cards. And so I put Handy Andy's Get out of services. Town. So I went uh, day Handy one. Handy Andy, I love it. I went day one <laughs> to 20 neighbors in the neighborhood, and I had a 100% rejection rate. So I did wow. not get any clients, but I just kept at it. And kept yeah, at sales it. 101 right there. And so the first year, I just had one or two, and yeah. then I had the third, and then every year the business got bigger. So by the time I was um, a senior in high school, I had uh, three guys working for me, and I had 40 lawn care clients, and I did what? not just cutting grass. I did you know clean gutters. I did pretty much anything for money. Anything for money. That's what people say about me in Durham. <laughs> like Nico. They, they don't even know I'm in the solar industry. Like I, that dude will do anything for money. <laughs> it was uh, it was it was it was my first experience of entrepreneurship. But I remember cutting small deals. I had one uh, one of my clients said, uh, oh, there's a big snowstorm coming up. Do you shovel snow? I'm like, sure. Yes. So I, I shoveled her her snow, you know, with, with the big shovel that my dad had. And she's like, well, why don't we do this a better way? Why don't I just buy you a snowblower and then you do my driveway first, the next big snow. I was like, great, done. So she paid 300 bucks for a snowblower. I went out, I did her lawn, like the, or her driveway the first time, and I cleared $300 that day. So that I said, you know, it just a lot of small things like that kind of came together and that's-, uh, that's I tell how... my boys this all the time. So like my, my, my latest business idea for my boys is, do you know like, you know that feeling when you wake up at 6.30 and you hear the trash truck outside and you're just like, oh, God, I forgot to take the trash out, right? Yep, like, of course. Why doesn't somebody in the neighborhood volunteer, like not even volunteer, but just like I would pay – Ten bucks a week. Oh, I I would have I would have done that. Yeah. I would have I would have been that as a right? kid. I would have like gladly so like I, taken that out. The I night told my boys, my went, my oh. seven year old Caleb, his chore at home is to bring the can back up to the house, right? And I said, do you like doing this? He's like, yeah. I said, what if you charged five bucks per house per week? How many houses could you do? He's trying to figure out how to get to a hundred bucks, right? I'm like, just in our little block alone, there are twenty people that I'm sure would pay you to do this. That's a hundred bucks a week. Come on, buddy. A lot better than allowance right? from dad. Yeah, this is 4x <laughs> your goal in one month. 
And, you know, but still he's like, so I'm testing it. My five-year-old, he's like, I would do that. And I'm like, dude, you can't even reach the handle. Come on. So you had this entrepreneurial knack, this entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. spirit. Mm -hmm. Yet curiously, you didn't seek an entrepreneurial venture straight out of high school. I'm wondering if that was because you were advised to go a different track or what was the thought process that led you to Harvard MBA and what looked like a successful executive corporate career? So it's interesting uh, that you asked that question because I did not set up Handy Andy's lawn, lawn care services because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I set up for survival. I right. was looking for a way to pay for high school. Mm. And when I got to my senior year and I discovered how the financial aid process worked and that the government would more or less take all the money I just, I just took, I said, the people who advised me on financial aid that said, well, geez, you should take it all out in cash because you're going to need that money in, in, in college. Right. So I actually applied for financial aid and I was a hustler. I applied to over 100 private uh, scholarships and wow. I ended up getting you know, thirteen dollars or $14,000 in private money. But then I augmented that with you know, getting grants. And right. the other reality of, of being a son of a cab driver, our family was... I always thought just lower in middle income class, mm-hmm. but we actually were like right at the poverty line. So wow. we actually qualified for a lot of grant money. Wow. And so that's what allowed me to, ironically, yeah. Northwestern was the, the most expensive private school I applied mm-hmm. to, but I actually got the most money from them. So that's uh, that's why I, I kind of view myself as more of a scrapper than necessarily mm-hmm. a, a, a pure tried and true entrepreneur. What so when I, when I, when I, so just to answer yeah. your question, I went forward in my career I always looked at high growth, you know, kind of dynamic environments and you know, rapid growing startups. But I never really said when I was going to set up my first company. But when I finally set up CEA, I said that's when I was most in tune with my uh, my calling. What a testament to your mother and father that though you were at the poverty line, you never felt poor, right? It says more than words could say about the character that was that was instilled in you and your family. I came from a blue collar, uh, you know, bunch of you know, plumbers and, yeah. and other, uh, you know, uh, other. My dad was tenth out of twelve kids. Grew up in, uh, you know, yeah. a small town of five thousand folks. So you're absolutely right. And I just just flew in from St. Louis uh, today. So yeah, I, I know. Uh, what do you feel as an entrepreneur at heart, and someone who now you know who advises entrepreneurs? What do you think is a core skill that if you don't have it, you have to develop it to be an entrepreneur? You have to have an undying commitment to your cause mm-hmm. and know that you will you will succeed. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. Uh, one of, in my corporate environments, I was working at Dell Computer. And a lot of people ask me, well, how did you get a job with Dell in China selling commodity products to the Chinese? <laughs> and I'll tell you, they did not have an ad saying, I'm looking for a six foot five white guy <laughs> to, sell, to sell products to the Chinese. So yeah. I, I went into my job search while I was in business school saying, I wanted to go, go to China. Yeah. Because I talked to a lot of CEOs, had a lot of great speakers, and every single one of them I asked, what is one functional job that you wish you had prior to becoming a CEO? And I said, second, what's one geographic area that you wish you had experience in prior to that role? And so invariably, they all said, I wish I had a position in sales because I never learned how to sell at a business school like this one or anywhere else. And they all said, China is up and coming and the place to be. I never had the experience of working there. Or some actually had it, but I, I just I saw that theme over and over and over again. So when I went down my job search, uh, leaving Harvard, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to find a job in sales and I want to do it in China. And come hell or high water, I'm going to make it happen. And so it was a long, drawn out process. It was effectively two consecutive years of undying 
networking, but that's how I got my internship with Intel, and then I got a full-time job with Dell. So I was the only, I was the only foreigner in a 900-person sales force. Wow. And so I walked in day one to a boss that I had not even had, who had not even interviewed me, and he tried to reassign me to someone else. <laughs> he's like, and I don't so want the gringo. He's like, I don't want the gringo. And so I had an uphill battle from day yeah. one. And so it was a brutal, brutal experience. And I knew I had two quarters to hit my quota. Yeah. And the first quarter, I hit 21% of my half a million dollar target. Wow. And I was on a path to, to leaving the to company. Yeah. But three days left in the second quarter, I closed a big deal with BMW. And they had one purchasing manager who is German. And I built up that trust and relationship with the course of those six months. And he saved me with one big purchase that allowed me to hit my target. And that that was. Uh, Did he know that you were on the precipice of losing your job? Uh, I never I never said that, but I think with the the constant uh, desperation I had in my voice, maybe he picked it up. So uh, I still still keep in touch with him today. There is nothing that can trump friendship and rapport. Nothing. It's true. I mean, people buy from people they like. Absolutely. At the end of the day, even beyond all things being equal, you can have all things look equal and your price slightly higher. And if you've built the right relationship, people will buy from you. And yeah. so to answer your question, it, it was that same mentality. Mm-hmm. I went to work every morning at 7 a.m., an yeah. hour before everyone else, and I left at, at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. But I would have already woken up at 5.30. I studied Mandarin for an hour before going yeah. to, to the, the office. And when I got home, I studied Mandarin for an hour because I was committed to learning the language and to learning the culture. But I was also committed to hitting my, my sales target. And so yeah. it took a lot of of long hours and I said, there is no way that I can not succeed. And so that's the same mentality I took yeah. when I set up my business. And I think as an entrepreneur to succeed, yeah. you have to have that same type of mentality. That's really interesting insight into your personality and how you've grown your business. You've been in the solar industry for more than a decade as I have, and you've been in China for 15 years. A lot of times on Suncast, we talk about how the US industry has changed. Mm-hmm. But we've never gotten a chance to really think about how the Chinese industry has changed. You were a part of the IPO of one of the quintessential brands of our time for solar, taking it from completely unknown and you and Arturo Herrera beating the streets and effectively creating a brand outside of China for a company that, that was unknown. How have you seen the industry at large change in China over the last 15 years? I'll tell a few stories around this, but one uh, actually happened in SPI in, uh, in Long Beach in 2006. So that's my first SPI, and uh, Aturo and I uh, joined uh, right around the same time. Yeah. Uh, Aturo Herrero was uh, in charge of sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was put uh, in charge of uh, supply chain and uh, procurement for long-term polysilicon contracts. And so Aturo and I, I remember just a few weeks into the job. I did join it. I was, I joined a little bit for Aturo, but right around the same time. So we went to SPI yep. with Mr. Gao and Stephen Jew. And the four of us, uh, we actually had to share rooms. So Aturo and I had a room and uh, Stephen and Mr. Gao, the, yeah. the, the very successful Mr. Gao had to share a room. And that was just company policy at the time. Yeah. So yeah. we said, okay, that's, that's what we do. That's amazing. So Aturo and I came back from a bunch of parties around mm-hmm. one in the morning. And it just so happened at that time, the hotel alarm, fire alarm went off. And so everyone was forced to leave, leave the hotel. So Mr. Gao and Stephen come out 
Stephen is in his tidy whities and his get out of town. Uh, his, his, his tank top, and Mr. Gao is wearing PJs that look like they belong on a sixth grader. And so the two of them come out, hair strewn, and Ajur and I come back and we look at each other. We're just right outside the lobby. Like, is it serious that we just joined this company? Yeah. At the time, Trina was 500 <laughs> employees. We just had 75 megawatts of capacity. Wow. No one knew the company. It was like, we either made a massive mistake or this is going to be a wild ride and right. so but it was experiences like that that was very bonding uh you know driven so you know once again th there were a lot of policies in place that were not really international i will tell you another story actually i i, I haven't told this circle outside of trina it's right. too much but my first week on the job i was early to work like i always was but there was funny because like there was no one around except there was a spanish woman who was was there sitting there waiting and i said oh excuse me, how, how can I help you? And she said, oh, I'm just waiting for the sales team. I'm like, well, I don't see anyone here. They're like, oh yeah, he's, he's off getting coffee. And so I went to the coffee machine. I was like, well, there's a customer waiting. Why are you in here hanging out? And he's like, oh, I was, I'll, I'll get to her in a few minutes. And I was like, well, you should pay attention to the client and uh, yeah. why don't we go together to sit down? So I, I, he's like, oh, there, there are plenty of, of clients. We'll, we'll get there. And what's funny is I was talking to him in Mandarin. Yeah. So actually, I said to, uh, I actually sat in the meeting and I said, I want to see how this goes. So this guy just spoke a little bit of English, very broken English. And it was, she was having a hard time communicating. So I just went through and I just did the translation. And it was clear she was wanting a one or two megawatts, which is a big number That's at that time. a big number. So, it, you know, a very important client. And yet she was not getting treated well at all and by someone who barely spoke English. And so I ended up staying in the morning with her and helped her get a little better comfort with the company. Halfway through the morning, she said, well, where's your, where's your restroom? And I pointed to where it was and she came back out and sheepishly asked me, was there, was there a Western toilet? And I was like, well, I've not been in the women's restroom, but I knew the men's restroom did not have a Western toilet. Yeah. So uh, I further investigated, and then yeah, they told me, yeah, there's no Western toilets in this. Uh, this you know, we literally our office was in a, in a part of a warehouse. Mm. So I literally the next day I sent out a note to the management team in both English and Chinese, yeah. and I just said, we need an international toilet in right. the you know in the company. And so everyone, uh, I sent the email out an hour before the management team meeting, and I walked in the meeting with 20 people, and they all just burst out laughing. So I looked like a complete idiot. But by the end of that first week, that was my first accomplishment at Trina, was getting a Western, a toilet, Western put toilet in the uh, put next to the the sales uh, sales office. So for those for those who might be unfamiliar, what's a, what's an Eastern toilet? Oh, uh, an Eastern toilet is just literally a hole in the ground oh, that ground. goes to some plumbing or, or not, yeah. but, uh, if you're but, lucky, yeah. it's got step treads. So, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Step treads were, <laughs> uh, were, were typically there, yeah. but, uh, to make sure you don't slip because those were uh, slippery at some time. So, yeah. so once again, I mean, just, just two early stage stories of, of Trina, but a lot of people saw Trina as one of the up and comers. And so when we had the, uh, private equity investment from, uh, Merrill Lynch, Milestone Capital and Good Energies, I was kind of part of that group of folks with Aturo and, and a couple others to help try to internationalize the company. And Amazing. so those were some of the stories, but I will say from a factory quality standpoint, I mean, I, and that was one of my, that was one of my like private hobbies, you know, at the yeah. end of the day, I would love to just walk the factory floor and it was constantly walking with clients, but I actually I went to the next level of depth. And, you know, I talked to the guys working on the 
factory floor, understand what are their pain points. And I mean, just there's so many manual steps and there's so many problems, but I didn't have a reference point. So it wasn't until years later that I went through and I, I saw many, many other factories. I was like, wow, Trina actually had decent quality at the time. But right. the industry over the, my last 12 years has just improved leaps and bounds from a quality standpoint. Mm -hmm. But I recognize at the early onset at how easy it was to quote unquote, you know, game the system or to, yeah. to make slight changes in, in some of the temperature or the manufacturing conditions. And that can actually have a pretty big impact on quality. And so that's that was really the genesis of the business of CA was from my factory floor experience at Trina. What were some of the things that you identified early on that could and should be automated and how did that evolve in the industry? Well, I, specifically I, around modules and we don't have to sure, spend the whole time sure. talking about your time no, no, no. Trina. And, you know, so once again, I, I, I'm not a, I will be very happy to say I'm not an engineer, but I run an engineering services company. So I've uh, learned a few things on the, on the trade, but I was not enough of an expert at the time or even now to really recommend which types of equipment should or should not be automated. And there's also different philosophies about automation. And you can have a highly automated facility, but if all of the automation has some slight defects in terms of the calibration, yeah. you can have a whole batch of modules that are completely manufactured the wrong way. So th there's a lot that has to do with the overall ecosystem mm -hmm. uh, and that operating system that the factory really adopts and how the operators work you know, with the equipment. There are many, many parts of that overall ecosystem that have to work together to have a high, you know, highly uh, high quality manufacturing facility. Yeah. So those are things uh, that have to be thought about. But it was it was clear to me, you know, once again, the soldering process mm -hmm. that it did not need to be, uh, you know, follow that part of the industry. And it, right. but it took a while for a lot of the, the Chinese to adapt and make those shifts. But uh, but they did uh, they did happen over time. Do you feel like there was a, a forcing function, a time and uh, a period of time where someone made an infrastructure decision that forced everyone else's hand? I don't say that there was just, you know, one, you know, cataclysmic event that everyone just shifted over. Yeah. But I, I will say that the, the trends happen. I mean, just even looking at, uh, you know, at yield machines, once again, electroluminescence is yeah. something we take for granted. Every facility should have two, if not three machines on, yeah. on the on the module line. But the reality was there was a point in time where there weren't Nobody any. Had, yeah. And it was just random, random spot testing. So. Right. You know, I, I will definitely say when I left Trina in 2008, I saw a leapfrog improvement from 2006 when I started. Yeah. But really, 2008 to 2010, you know, there are a lot of interesting changes, I think, that started to happen and now have kind of become commonplace in the industry today. You were early on with some of Trina's new product introductions, like Pluto. What was the ASP, the global ASP for Pluto when you introduced that product? So actually, Pluto was from SunTech. And oh, that's this, right. Sorry. The, the, the Trina, you know, Trina was still, um, I, I would say, you know, when, when I was inside Trina, we were still always looking at SunTech. SunTech was clearly the, the leader. And, you know, with Dr. Xi being uh, such a, a strong businessman, but also, mm -hmm. more importantly, a great scientist at the University of New South Wales, he was always kind of seen as the preeminent scientist in the right. sector. So SunTech was the one who had the biggest IPO, had the most right. access to cash, and so they came out with the latest technology. But back in the day when I was at Trina, yeah, I, re I still remember the first quarter, we were selling at $3.75 a Amazing. watt in late 06, and then prices were rising. Yep. And so it was linked entirely with polysilicon pricing. Yeah. And so spot pricing and polysilicon 
back in the peak in, in mid-08 was going at $475, mm-hmm. $475 a kilo. Yeah. I think there are even some that, that, were, that just pushed right at $500 a kilo. So yeah. it was a crazy time in the sector. And I think pricing for modules yeah, peaked at around yeah, $4.35 a watt. It was somewhere in that range. So it was a it was a crazy time, and then 2008. That's when uh, late 2008 was when the Spanish tariff came online and offline, and then uh, the whole financial crisis happened. That's that's right when I set up my business. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What kind of uh, wild hair got into you? That obviously you don't you don't have any more visibility than the rest of us. That there was a global financial crisis looming. Tell me about your decision. For those who haven't gone and checked out Andy's LinkedIn profile, Andy had a sequential step up corporate executive management, but always for a stint of 18 months to 24 months, right? A growing trend for our generation, but at that time, it was probably not that trendy of a thing to do as a Harvard grad. And just as Trina is starting to take off, you guys have successfully IPO'd, you decide you want to take life down the hard path. <laughs> and it was, uh, yes, exactly. It was, uh, so I was never really great at, uh, at the corporate path. I just, my, my personality was always one to explore and do things that were not the stated way. And so that got me into trouble at times. And, um, you know, with Trina, it was great. I, Trina was by far my most exciting experience. It was the longest tenure I'd stayed with any company yeah. before I resigned. Then I'd been there just right at two years, and so I, I get, turned to my resignation. Mr. Gao refused to accept it, and he pushed it back. <laughs> and so we had a long two-hour discussion. He refused to, to accept it. So I had to. it took me about two months before I finally unwound from Trina. So I wow. stayed a little over two years. But I, my decision to, uh, to leave Trina was, was largely, largely personal. I mean, I had a great relationship with Mr. Gao, with the board. I was on all the earnings calls. It was fantastic to be part of a... Uh, an IPO uh, in, on the New York Stock Exchange, yeah. so there's a lot of exciting stories around yeah. that. But you know, at the end of the day, I just right before I started Trina, the smartest thing I ever did was I I had just met uh, my wife, fiance at the time, but about 15 months prior, and so I pr- proposed to her the week before, the same week that I uh, both turned 30 and I started Trina. Yeah. So it was a big week, uh, big week for me, but no I doubt. chose to get married to her, and so I was committed to uh, to her, but I, I kept telling her, oh, it's gonna get better. Yeah. You know, Trina promised me that, oh, we're gonna move the headquarters mm-hmm. to Shanghai. When you have all the decision makers in Shanghai, you'll be with your wife. Yeah. My wife did not accompany, she did not like Changzhou. Changzhou is a nice city, and it, right. it's, but it's still a tier four city in China That's at the right. time. So again, for those unfamiliar with China, Changzhou is about a two hour train ride from Shanghai on bullet train, and not the place that Andy's wife decided that she wanted to live. So ironically, it was actually two hours and 39 minutes on my first trip in 06. Oh. And then it got consecutively faster. So it's actually just a 49-minute train ride now. Amazing. But, but the, so the, the infrastructure in China is, is amazing, much yeah. better under the train system than That's the amazing. US. It was still a, it was still a nearly two-hour ride back when I was at Trina. Exactly, exactly. 2000, you know, but, but truth be told, I said, look, if I'm going to, uh, you know, if I'm ever going to succeed in life, I have to put family first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to stay married to my wife, yeah. not to Trina. Not to Trina. And That's so right. that was my whole decision to say, look, I wanted to maintain my life in China, but I was going to do something in Shanghai. And so I really had everyone and their brother calling me to offer me a job. Of course. And I actually chose rather than to say no, because I knew I would never work for another Chinese solar company. And there was a practical side, but I had to non-compete with Trina and actually chose to honor that. And that was important to me because I had a good relationship with the board and with the, the leadership team. I didn't want to forsake that to just jump to another 
competitor. I felt that was that was not my my calling. So I said, I'm going to go down my own path. Mm -hmm. And so, but I took every single one of those phone calls, and I visited a lot of factories in a few months' time. Yeah. And I sat down with Dr. Shi. I sat down with you know Sean Chu at uh, Canadian and. Mr. Miao at, uh, at Yingli. And so I went to all the top companies. I visited all their facilities. And it was great to have a dialogue with all these guys. Mm -hmm. But I realized, look, I, I, I have to go my own path. Yeah. But over the course of those few months, I met a lot of the industry leaders, many of whom already had known me. And so it was kind of a re reconnection with them and also getting to know their other senior leadership uh, team members. And I realized, hey, there's, there's actually a lot of value with this network and being able to speak Mandarin. And I had a lot of Trina clients still yeah. calling me after I left Trina and just asking for help. I said, I started to do supply chain and quality work for free because I just knew these folks would want to be nice. And I realized, hey, I need to start charging for these services. And so that was really the, the whole genesis of CEA yeah. and, and being that person who is on the ground, building a team who is a trusted, independent third-party advisor. And that's why you know, we never work for manufacturers where our business was always aligned with the downstream party, whether it was the financier as, yeah. the, as the bank or whether it was the IPP or yeah. the developer or the EPC. We always worked with the downstream entity and act on their behalf in an independent, truly independent third party fashion. Yeah. And that's where I think our, our value proposition, our business model is very different from a lot of the other large German <coughs> test labs. Folks like to Rhineland, to Sued, yeah. all very reputable organizations but what I learned being in house in Trina and also seeing the industry is that they get their profits doing certification work on behalf right. of manufacturers. Right. They also have small independent quality teams that quote unquote, they're really not that independent. Yeah. So I realized uh, a lot of it was just face-to-face -face explanation with other key industry players, but they realized, hey, I, I trust Andy and I trust the, the CA team to perform this work and do a better quality oversight mm -hmm. than someone else. And so that's that was really kind of the genesis of our supply chain and, and quality assurance practice. Was that clear to you before you left Trina, that that's where you were gonna take CEA? I, I would lie if I said that that was exactly where, where I thought. Uh, I thought my biz, our business was gonna be more, you know, kind of high level advisory. I had yeah. a, a previous uh, pre-MBA background in, in consulting and so I thought, okay, you know, M and A and all these big deals, like, you know, that's that's where, you know, the market will be and Sexy. there's an opportunity. But once I, uh, I, I did not predict the financial crisis. I was actually on a boat and uh, just off of Palau diving when Merrill Lynch went under and the, or Bear Stearns went under Bear and Stearns, the whole crisis yeah. happened. It was, it was crazy. So I literally, people asked, where have you been? I was like, on a, I was on a boat in the middle of the Pacific with no access to internet. So I had no idea what oh happened. Oh my gosh. So I, you know, I set up CEA in the midst of all this cataclysmic change, and What's, I realized. What time of the year was it? That uh, you so left? this was uh, this is the fall. So I oh, was right in left September. In the, oh my god! So goodness. literally September 2008. So it was the best time and also the worst time to set up a company. Yeah. I mean, it was the worst time because it was clearly a financial crisis. Everyone was stymied. They didn't know what was going on, and they didn't want to just you know pay for someone to go do some advisory work. But at the same time, it was the best time because I literally had you know I had no staff. I had no other expenses. I was working from home. And so I chose to go the lowest cost path. I, I, I mm -hmm. saved every single nickel and dime I could just to get by. And But once again, I, I figured out as I, as I went. And so I threw the spaghetti on the wall. I tried yeah. a lot of different things. Doing quality work was one. Doing supply chain work was another. Yeah. Trying to do market research reports and a whole host of other things. 
I just tried it all until uh, I realized people just kept coming back to quality needs and to supply chain needs. And that's where we really went deep in the business. As you started on your entrepreneurial journey, again, uh, stepping out of Trina, what do you feel like you leveraged well from your corporate career into being an entrepreneur and a CEO? What tools did you take from that corporate experience that really helped structure your thinking as an entrepreneur? So even though my, you know, once again, I define Trina as part of a corporate experience because uh-huh. I was of part of the executive leadership team. And it was, it was a phenomenal experience to, like, you know, to be able to go through an IPO, uh, meet with investors on both the IPO and the follow-on offerings, you know, be in earnings calls. And that was a very unique period of time. And I'm so happy. I never want to do it again. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story later about that. <laughs> but I, I learned you know, how, to, how to work with the board, how to work with external investors, how to do a lot of things that a larger company and a fast-growing company mm-hmm. had to do as, as a, as a you know, through a, a New York Exchange, uh, New York Stock Exchange listed company you know, re- was required to do. So I learned a lot of those skills, but at the same time, you had to survive in China and we did not have infrastructure. I did not have this robust team underneath me. In fact, I was not given any budget to hire anyone other than just whoever I could kind of come and convince mm, right. to join at a very low cost base. And so I remember the first few, I actually built out a team of 10 folks uh, and there was a great mix of personalities, but it was, it was frankly, it was a, a bunch of foreigners who they were passionate about China, they're passionate about solar. And I convinced him, I was like, I only have a, a thousand or fifteen hundred dollar a month budget. Wow. But folks came on board and said, Look, I can guarantee you're gonna get a very rich learning experience. And it's great to see some of those guys who've gone off and been successful. Yeah, Matt Miller Recurrent have. and mm-hmm. Matthias Larkin and uh, you know they're, they're Jerome Maze and a few others went off and, and had great had, still are having great careers in solar, but they started from that very early stage. As a CEO, especially of an early stage company, how do you think about growing your team? What do you look for in in people and how might you how do you advise the companies that you currently sit on the board of around the notion of that first hire or uh, what to, how to spend money after you've raised your first round so culture matters so much we absolutely hire for culture i'm very passionate about the company's core purpose and values I keep my uh, my core values on my phone and oh, talk wow. about them very frequently. I yeah, talk about it with clients because I think this is really one of the things that makes CEA so unique. Mm-hmm. You know, we have eight distinct values. Uh, we are family, have fun, any curiosity, be humble, do the right thing, results matter, own it, and perform above and beyond. And that. those are not the values that I came up with. This was the team who huh. came up with these. And so we hire based on our values and we fire based on our values. And so, you know, my advice to entrepreneurs, and I will fully admit, uh, I, I failed the first several years of my business, and I did not define our our values. We had a culture; it was definitely a work hard, intense, work hard, have fun, you know, culture. But we did not really codify and formalize those values until later. And then I admit that, you know, I did this in 2011 with the team, but we chose fairly, you know, bland values like integrity. Well, everyone's got integrity as a value. But we went through the process shortly after, um, you know, in 2006 as a team or 2016 as a team and really honed in our values and really talked about what, are, what is the DNA of CEA. And so, you know, my advice to aspiring entrepreneurs and to folks setting up companies, set your direction first, understand what your culture is and define how that culture is because mm-hmm. the, the culture is defined by the leader. Mm-hmm. And I never, as I said, I didn't set all the core values 
but I definitely defined a direction and uh, the cultural fabric of CA is where, you know, where we've been successful. And so we've always spent a lot of time recruiting and tr trying to choose the best, the best, the best. And I'm sure you've heard the Jack Welsh, Welsh story, you know, one's hire ones, two's hire threes and threes put you out of business. You know, for that reason, we've always invested uh, in recruiting and, and trying to bring on great talent. And that's why I feel very lucky today. I feel very humbled that mm. I can lead a team with uh, with great executives, guys like Paul Worms or yeah. our VP of operations who who really, he blows me away with 40 years of solar yeah. experience. So I feel humbled that I can work with someone like Paul that's awesome. and have a great team. Uh, and I know some of the guys that you've tried to recruit and uh, it speaks it speaks highly to the type of talent that you go after. Well, let's transition to uh, something that you're well familiar with, a section I call Hot or Hype. With that, we'll start into Hot or Hype. Uh, as you know, it's a segment where I'll take a market or topic. You take 30 to 60 seconds. Let me know whether you think it's hot or hype and why. And lukewarm is sometimes a respectable answer. So we'll start with DG, distributed generation, energy storage. Hot or hype? Absolutely, everyone knows this is a this is a hot hot segment. <laughs> so it's uh, it's very clear. Uh, once again, my vantage point's uh, somewhat unique, being in China, mm -hmm. the massive growth of electric vehicles, and mm -hmm. so it's off that back that massive growth of the Chinese government, who's committed by 2030 to be 100% electric vehicles. Yeah. That you've seen this extreme expansion of a lot of the the battery uh, battery cell manufacturers. Sorry for those who didn't hear that. Can you repeat what you just said about 2030? So by 2030. China will be a hundred percent electric vehicle run nation. They will not have ye, any gas. Ye naysayers, ye naysayers out there who believe that the ICE economy is going to persist into 2050, be forewarned. So when China, the Chinese government makes a decision to move, they they move. Yeah. And so there is a it's a very clear uh, direction, and you see the companies that are ramping up right now. You're not seeing this in India or any other massive, massive country. Look, I say this on Twitter, and I've said it here on the show. I can't comprehend. I mean, kudos to LA, who's made a strong commitment for 2030 following China. I can't comprehend a city like New York, which has the wherewithal financially and politically and, ha and has the world at its doorstep, not being willing to commit to anything short of 2040. I mean, Chicago can commit to 2035. LA can commit to 2030. The entire country of China can't commit to 2030, and New York wants a wants a uh, I don't know they want a mulligan. <laughs> so. Well, you look what's already happened on you know on electric uh, vehicles for buses, right? I mean, yeah. the bus fleets in many many cities have yeah. already shifted, right? You see massive companies like BYD mm -hmm. that are continuing to grow yep. and expand. Yep. So the the expansion is already happening. So. My view is that battery storage, energy storage, is clearly shifting behind this whole you know, battery trend, uh, and it's going to be a lithium-based uh, chemistry that's going to take it there. Well, so. that is, that is uh, an interesting perspective, that it'll be lithium-based, and I think you, more than others, have a perspective uh, on, uh, on why that would be true. We could probably make an entire segment on that alone. Absolutely. Um, we'll stick with the idea of uh, electric vehicles for the next uh, question on Hot or Hype. Electric vehicle grid integration. Is this hot or hype? This is absolutely a, another hot topic that we're going to continue to see this trend uh, play out uh, globally. So it's not just uh, not just in China, but yeah. uh, but certainly the U.S. and other other regions are going to see that uh, that integration happen. What's what's missing for it to be truly just on fire and like today rather than three two three years from now? I still think there's there's probably more regulatory support that's needed to really mm -hmm. get it to you know to turbocharge that uh, that speed. But I, I view this as a, a hot long term trend. So. 
uh, it will it will continue to be something that we're we're going to see over the next decade. If you left CEA and started a business around storage and electric vehicles, where would you focus your time? I absolutely would spend time uh, working on utility scale because I know for a fact that there's going to be a glut of you know just gigawatts and gigawatts of projects that are going to go in the ground. So I, I definitely see there being a massive amount of manufacturers that are trying to get in this business, but they don't understand the use case. They don't understand the application. So frankly, it's part of the business that we're building within CA and uh -huh. it's been a genesis of that is, is really the shift towards storage. So a lot of people know us in solar, but we're equally doing uh, a lot of work on, on storage right now. So Very in fact, we're, uh, With we're creating that business to do technical advisory service for the storage industry. With good reason you enjoyed the Tactical Tuesday and Michael Foster's response. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you'll get to hang out with Michael this during the show. All right, next topic, blockchain for energy transactions, hot or hype? I think it's it's hype at this stage. I think there still is gonna be a little while before blockchain really comes uh, to become a mainstream trend. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not saying on a long-term basis it can become hot, but I think in the short term it still is hype. Mm -hmm. And finally, one uh, area that you have a undeniable strength, bifacial solar modules, hot or hype? So bifacial is absolutely hot. It is so clear that everyone in the industry is shifting to bifacial. But you know, the reality is that the banks and other financing institutions are not, they're not comfortable with, with bifacial just yet. And because so a lot the of data people, around yield? Yeah, they, they don't have the complete data set and they also uh, you know, banks are just very conservative organizations. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not used to making bets on new technologies. And one of the things I'll say, we see this proliferation of new technologies. It's not just, you know, it's not just bifacial, it's also half cut. It's yep. also the shift to perk, you yep. know, HJT is coming too. And so there's a lot of organizations that still haven't seen this, you know, all the numbers around bifacial and really understanding where's the yield yeah. and, and what, what can a manufacturer warranty? Because it so much depends on the, on the location. If you're on a white sandy and desert, the, yeah, the albedo. Well, exactly. Yep. It's it's going to make a big difference. So I actually, uh, I'm sure you probably listened to the episode with Jenya Medbury. His answer to this question continues to blow me away. On the one hand, he noted he noted how the transition to bifacial will be the single largest step change in our industry since trackers were introduced to the industry, and how this is a much easier transition than trackers ever thought about because where folks really had to get their head around the new mechanical differentiation between a fixed tilt, no moving parts, and a tracker. And it took a long time for the financial industry to realize that, oh, be just because there's moving parts doesn't make it a more risky product. Bifacial is fundamentally no change. It's, it's business as usual. It's simply a question of whether or not you're going to pay what Jenya says he thinks is the fundamental premium of one to two cents, or if, like REC, other companies are going to step up and say, no, you know what, we think this is the future and we're going to offer it at parity. What are your thoughts on that? I, I absolutely believe that it's, it's going to be uh, an offer uh, based on parity in the future. Wow. But once again, we have not seen manufacturers shift uh, mm -hmm. just yet. Yep. It's a combination of the financing partners uh, needing to get comfortable with it. But but, but Jenya is absolutely right. I mean, it's fundamentally, there is... Bifacial has been out there for a long time. Yeah. Glass on glass modules have yeah. been out there for a long time. Yeah. This is not a new technology. Right. It's just now being deployed at gigawatts of scale on the utility, utility it, scale basis. So I think the, it, the companies, it, though, the developers deployed? that lead this, they're the ones who are going to really be at the, the forefront. Okay, so is it really being deployed at a gigawatt scale? Question two, deployed by whom? Meaning who could I buy bifacial at scale from today? And then question three, maybe dovetailing that is where? 
So, so, so to clarify, it is not being deployed at gigawatt scale today, yeah. but it will be. Uh -huh. And there is there are plenty of uh, manufacturers who can produce at large scale, but they're in the process of, of shifting over their lines. Yeah. And so some of this is happening outside the U.S. Yeah. as well. So China has seen a number of large bifacial installations. Yeah. You have other markets, uh, you know, in... Uh, you know, Notably, Longi has done almost a gigawatt, or over a gigawatt of bifacial in China. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. correct. Longi as well as... But I've heard, uh, developers com I've heard developers complain that they can't get bifacial at scale. They, they can get a one or two megawatt pilot, but they can't order a, a hundred megawatts of it right now. Uh, so it it depends. There there are uh, I think there are manufacturers that have capacity that has been out largely allocated, but you know once again depending sense. when those projects are that would make sense. Um, the, the, but by 2019 you get to 2020 there'll be there'll be multi gigawatts globally. Do you, do you and and I think that transition will happen. If you look what happened to Perk, mm -hmm. if you, for those not familiar yep. with Perk technology on the cell side, yep. you know, it was it was a solid you know three four or five years for the transition to happen. Yep. But when you first counted the Perk equipment coming to the market and all the R&D that was put in. But once the transition started to happen, then it shifted. I mean, look how, how quickly this industry shifted from multi to mono. Uh, it's, it's very clear. Or from mono to multi and back. Yeah, yeah you know, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there was a, back in the day, there was a time where mono was, uh, was more in vogue than That's multi. Right. But folks like GCL just yeah. lowered that cost on the multi-crystalline wafering right. side. And then it was 80% multi at one point in time. Yeah. But now we're shifting and, and we're, we're going to see multi struggle for, oh, yeah. for a or, while. Mono's going to continue to dominate. Yeah. 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 No, I would, I would argue we're going to see multi cease to exist. I think that there's a lot to explore around bifacial. I think that developers, anyone listening to Suncast over the last six months knows my perspective is if you're a developer and you're not figuring out how to develop a bifacial, you are like going to get caught in the dinosaur age. And, and for that matter, if you haven't begun to, if you haven't hired someone already to be thinking about your storage solution, then you're already behind. That that perhaps in certain circles is controversial. But speaking of controversial, I like to often probe guys who've been in the industry long enough to have a position. Andy, what position do you hold about the solar industry or or maybe about life in general that is particularly controversial? So uh, in terms of solar, I definitely believe there's going to be a period of time where we see a completely different shift from the traditional PPA model. And we will see periods where energy is effectively free because there's going to be such a proliferation and growth of solar that it's going to drive cost. You know, the cost won't be won't be zero, but the the end energy that's available due to solar is going to effectively be zero, and so that's going to only further enhance the the growth on storage. And that yeah. storage is absolutely the right asset class to match where the the you know demand is with the production of solar. Yeah, we had a uh, a healthy discussion. I have a WhatsApp group uh, of about sixty solar entrepreneurs down in Latin America, and we were all discussing this notion of electricity will be free from solar. Given that you have perspective globally on where else, where's the profit? If in fact solar energy is free, then it's a loss leader for some other category of, of revenue. What is that category? What so the... I think there's there's going to be a different, a, a very different paradigm where folks are going to look holistically about managing their overall, you know, overall energy needs. It's not about energy at one point in time during the day. It's going to be manage everything soup to nuts. Yeah. And so I think it's going to be a, a reorganization of how utilities interact with clients and how they, they bundle or unbundle their services. Mm -hmm. But there's a, an overall integration about how do they deliver overall solution to, to clients as opposed to just dispatching energy on a, yeah. on a per kilowatt hour basis. And I think the, the current utilities in place uh, are going to have to make some adjustments to their model. 
And I think you're, we're going to see that. You know, once again, I, I think it's very common knowledge that there's a lot of nuclear that's come off in a lot of leading markets like Germany. I think we're going to see the U.S. Uh, nuclear going to you know, shut down. We're going to see you know, more and more coal plants coming offline. And then therefore, you know, solar renewables is going to continue to take over. You've got a lot of experience, and I want to tap into some of that here. Uh, as you know, lots of folks who are listening to Suncast these days are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. I'd love to explore what are some key lessons or takeaways that you've had in your life from key mentors that have helped you along the path. Yeah, I've had a lot of mentors uh, along the way. In fact, that's actually one of my my learnings is the importance of mentorship mm-hmm. and having a mentor. And I definitely felt I benefited when I was in a a company working to find out you know who's the person who can really guide my career and help me grow and evolve and so finding a good mentor is one of the pieces of advice that I would say and totally. the challenge I had I think at the early phases of my business at CEA is that you know when, when one becomes an entrepreneur and it's certainly a self-funded entrepreneur where I didn't have a board or I didn't have any other investor telling me what to do I lost my direction a little bit. You know, I, mm-hmm. I lost some of that. You know, I learned from my clients. I learned from my interaction with suppliers. I learned from what I saw in the industry. And I was always reading heavily and, and trying to study, but I, I didn't really have the right set of folks, I think, to guide me. So yeah. I, the, last, um, you know, the last handful of years, I've really made a conscious effort to seek out mentors and to seek out advisors. So I'm, I'm proud to say I've got a couple of, uh, of board, uh, board members who, who help me very uh, actively. I have an executive coach who's helped us uh, you know, dramatically over the last two to three years. Wow. And, and that's where you know, I still have others who I now go to on a point basis. But there's, a, there's a, a, an entrepreneurial organization group I joined called EO yeah. uh, based out of Shanghai. And mm-hmm. so uh, I also joined that organization in 2016. And I found like, once again, interacting with other entrepreneurs, other leaders in business, and even in folks with non-solar background, that's, uh, it's been very valuable. But I, I will say I, I still proactively, in fact, part of my trip here in the US this week was just meeting with a couple of CEOs of other like-minded companies. So I'm kind of creating more of a solar entrepreneur group uh, where we can exchange ideas and, and information and make sure we both all deploy best in breed uh, practices. Because I think that's extremely important to just have that that craving, that uh, desire to constantly learn, that's always been a part of my DNA. And I think the other solar entrepreneurs that I interact with and entrepreneurs in general who are successful, they're, they're constantly reading, they're constantly studying, and they're constantly learning. And I think those are important attributes to success. Hey, Solar Warrior, I have a question. Do you feel like sometimes you are bringing a knife to a gunfight? I talk to a lot of salespeople, I even talk to engineers in this industry, and sometimes, sometimes they're feeling stuck. They're feeling like they're still in the Stone Age, or as I mentioned, they're showing up to the battle ill-prepared. You know, according to Enact CEO Deep Chakraborty, there are still thousands of installers out there using CAD programs and Excel to make critical design and sales decisions. And some of you unwitting sales managers and owners are forcing your sales teams to wait, sometimes days on end, till their engineering counterparts can get back to them with a design. Can we stop the madness already and empower your sales team and your engineering team with simple productivity and accuracy? My friends at Helioscope created a software program to help you get through design faster and easier. 3D design, rapid proposals, bankable simulations, one-click sharing, heck, even integrations with energy tool base. The list goes on. You know, it's hard for me to believe that you're listening to this and you're not 
actually using Helioscope already. But to cover my bases, Paul has agreed that for Suncast listeners, you can get a not 30, but 60 day trial. That's right, extend your free trial for an additional 30 days. All you gotta do is email Paul or Knut after you sign up for your free trial of Helioscope, the fast, easy, and bankable way you and your sales team should be doing all your solar design. Sign up for your free trial at helioscope.com and email after you are all signed up and they'll give you that extension. Hey, we're halfway through this interview and I really hope that you're enjoying it. You know, if you're still on the fence about joining my Suncast tribe, you might be interested to know that this recording with Adam James actually took nearly two hours. And since my good buddy Tristan told me that I really should try to keep these under an hour, I've decided that when I do go over from now on with these episodes, like I did with Adam, and I'll no doubt do with others, I'll just post it up as extra content to my tribe members in the exclusive area for my inner circle to enjoy. Things like his thoughts on leaving Tesla and his answers to the hot or hype segment had to get left on the cutting room floor. I'm sorry for that. He even turned the tables on me. He made me cry a little. If you'd like to check that out, or if you just want to drop a little contribution in my virtual tip jar, you can head over to mysuncast.com forward slash member and learn more. I'll see you in the tribe. It's not always uh, roses and sunshine, pardon the pun. You know, the, the path of entrepreneurship is often very difficult. Can you tell us about a time where the odds were just seemingly against you? You alluded to the, the comment about what, why I started the business in 2008, and I did not predict the financial crisis. So I had just gotten married a year, year earlier. I just left arguably one of the, the tier one manufacturers in uh-huh. a great position. Yeah. I then went down the path of trying to set up a business in something that was totally not needed by the market. No yeah. one cared about high-level strategy consulting and solar. Zero client interest whatsoever. I just bought a house and put all my money into the down payment. And unfortunately, we, we had a, a, a contractor that was just completely raping and pillaging us. Oh, so man. it took 12 months rather than six and yeah, obviously 2x the budget. So I was between a rock and a hard place. Mm. Um, so And I had to force to, to build the business. So it was, uh, it was a struggle. How, tell me about your first contract, your first moment where you're like, okay, it looks like this might work. So I, I, there were many points where <laughs> I, I didn't know what was going to work, but uh, I, had a, um, I had a very, uh, very unique uh, relationship with a Trina client that was, you know, approached me and said, look, we have a, a need to buy polysilicon. And I knew polysilicon inside and out. Yeah. I did this for two plus years at Trina. I've been to every single uh, polysilicon facility under the sun, uh, yeah. both new and, and, and potential facilities. And so it was actually um, it was actually a European manufacturer. Mm-hmm. I can't say the name, but they said they needed to get long-term polysilicon pricing, yeah. but they had a very small buying power. And so it was a really odd time in the industry. The market hadn't fully settled. Pricing was in free fall, but I knew poly pricing on the spot basis was still well above their expectation. And I managed to negotiate a contract where I had four months to negotiate this agreement. And so they gave me a small retainer to do it, but I had some upside with uh, with the agreement. And it was going very, very well 
up until almost at the deadline, the fourth month, they technically didn't have to pay me anything because we hadn't signed the contract, but they agreed to extend it by another two months and it gave me enough wiggle room that I could get an agreement across the line and they ended up saving $35 million on, a, on a, an agreement. Was your was part of your comp on what you saved them? It wasn't uh, on a percentage basis, but I had a I had a success fee component, and that effectively gave me enough wiggle room to continue to run my business, and it made me get through year two. Year two, I've always been told that is the toughest <coughs> year. A lot of folks can have success early, but year two is often where the slump hits, the yeah. sophomore slump. And so I knew if I just mentally got through year two. I could survive. Yeah. And so that in that year two, when I closed that agreement, I hired a, a second intern. I was still working from my home and it was it was crowded. <laughs> but uh, I, my wife finally came down. She was pregnant with her, our first child, 2010. And there were two people, two interns waiting in line for the bathroom. Uh, there oh was a God. third that was inside. And she turned to me, came down to her house coat and said, you are out of here. So <laughs> that's <laughs> where I got, I got kicked out of my house. That's too. hilarious. Uh, so 2010, that was when CA got its first office. Uh, that's the turning point. Yeah, that was it. a turning point. And that's frankly when we, we started to start to grow and, yeah. and move in the right direction. So Solar Warriors, I want to read something for you that I'm reminded of as Andy tells this story. And if you aren't familiar with Naval Ravikant, founder of AngelList, he's a modern day philosopher and very, very successful investor. And he had a, uh, a thread on Twitter. I'll try to link to it if I can find the, the link. It was called How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. One of the things he points to, he says, arm yourself with specific knowledge, accountability, and leverage. And he talks about what three of those three things are. But in particular, what occurs to me is, as Andy's talking, is he said, um, Naval says, specific knowledge is knowledge that you cannot be trained for. If society can train you, it can train someone else, and it can replace you. And specific knowledge is found by pursuing your genuine curiosity and passion rather than whatever is hot right now. Building specific knowledge will feel like play, but it will look like work to others. And when specific knowledge is taught, it's through apprenticeships, not schools. So it occurs to me that for you, specific knowledge came in the form of a particular expertise around polysilicon. And when around your sophomore, as you said, the sophomore slump, there probably was a moment, as you, exp as you described, that it dawned on you, like, I've got specific knowledge. And I'm in a position of power with more than one potential acquirer of that knowledge. I would posit that if you're listening to this show, it, you probably fall in the category of the type of person who is building specific knowledge and who seeks to be better than average. So I would encourage you to think about where is that specific knowledge? If you had to step out today, if your company crumbled and you had tomorrow to put mortgage on the table, what transactional relationship could you have with someone whereby the knowledge that you've gained, which we now allude to as specific knowledge, would be more valuable to an outside party than the company that helped teach you how to gain it. Nico, I think it's a great, uh, great story and it's great insight. And I'll, I'll definitely say uh, to, to reinforce that comment, when I was looking to go into solar in 2006, and I consulted a lot of friends and further reinforced why I wanted to get into solar, they all said, don't do it. This industry is going to commoditize. You can do nothing special in an industry that's going to commoditize. There's going to be other Chinese manufacturers that jump mm -hmm. in and they're just going to trounce Trina. Mm -hmm. You're going to have no advantage whatsoever. I thought about that and I said, that's that's okay. I'm still passionate about this. I'm going to go find a way to make it work. Love it. But I, when I was setting up my business, I, I remember the same advice someone had said. Find a way. Andy, you're a foreigner in mm -hmm. China. You're never going to speak Chinese better than 
anyone in China. Yeah. You're never going to be able to, you know, out Chinese the Chinese. Yeah. So you have to find a way that you're going to be differentiated. And the sheer fact that I was only one of a handful of Western executives actually went through a Chinese solar IPO. The fact that I dealt with a unique set of, uh, had a unique set of relationships globally in a market where very few folks had those. Yeah. There was a niche there that I carved out for myself yeah. and it was about being that trusted third party. And yeah. that's why I said from the get-go, I did not want to have Chinese clients. Once again, I chose not to be a client to manufacturers because of my non-compete with Trina, mm -hmm. but it was actually the right business model decision as well yeah. because I would have just been an information provider to them. I couldn't sell them market research reports. They didn't right. want to pay for it. Right. But I realized my niche was the fact that I could help Western companies that were working with the Chinese and help them structure transactions and assure the quality of the products that they bought. That was a very definitive niche. And that was the foundation, those are the core principles of why I think CA was successful and we built a reputation and a, and a business model around that. And then it's migrated to other products, as I mentioned, yeah. you know, into storage. It's also migrated in other service offerings around independent engineering and owner's engineering yeah. and technical due diligence you know, here in the US. And so we've expanded our service, but it was on that same principle, why are we different? And that's why some folks come to us for independent engineering and they like the fact that we have this upstream supply chain. Yeah, knowledge. of course. That's something that's very different from some of the other big guys like a DMVGL that's or That's a very clear, clear example of specific knowledge. So how do, you know, you mentioned service offerings, you, your entire business is uh, a service business. How do you, as a CEO, help your team think about pricing your services? So it's, once again, there are a um, set of our services that are you know, based on industry norms. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we operate on a time and materials basis like, mm -hmm. like everyone else. So I don't necessarily think there's anything unusual or different in terms of how we price. I like to put it in terms of how do we create a unique customer experience mm -hmm. that delivers a wow effect. And that's when we talk about our value of perform above and beyond. That's where I always say to my team, think from your client's perspective. You know, we're a solution provider. I never want to be the guy who's in the factory raising the red flag saying, mm -hmm. I found a defect, look right. how smart I am. There is zero value in this industry to, to playing that role. And I've seen technical advisors when I was in Trina they come on board and they try to argue yeah. nitpicky nuances that mm. don't matter. We care about increasing the quality of all the products right. that are bought and consumed in this industry wow. because we want solar energy to be the predominant form of energy globally. That's beautiful. So for that reason, the folks who benefit from our work, in a lot of cases, they are manufacturers because we're helping them improve their standards. Yeah. But we're doing it on behalf of our clients. Raising the bar. And so the reality is, some people say, well, if you help the manufacturers get better quality, you're going to be pricing yourself out of a job. You're not going to have a job. And I said, no, that's not the case because yeah. we've seen this time and time again, whether you're a tier one or tier two, that's just, forget that that name. Arbitrary. It's, it's, it's something created by BNEF. That's right. And we, we know the BNEF team. They're a great team. Jenny Chase has built a fantastic organization. But at the end of the day, they clarified. They're not, it's not about quality. That's yeah. not what they're testing. Mm. They have a set, set of criteria like that defines tier, mm -hmm. tier one versus tier two. Yeah. But the reality is any manufacturer can come across different market forces 
that caused quality to drift. We're still in an uh. immature industry. This is the automobile industry in the 1920s. We're not sitting on the big three. Are there things that you're tracking, for that matter? Are there things that you're tracking at a macro level that you believe drive and impact quality of the solar? Oh, absolutely. Like absolutely. So we have a very sophisticated database, and I give um, our director of technology and quality, uh, George Tulopas, uh, a lot of credit. He had a background both as uh, on the downstream side and the EPC side, but then he worked for other companies in manufacturing. He saw a lot of OEM facilities globally, and he came to CA with this wealth of knowledge. And he saw that we were sitting on a lot of data, but we really didn't organize in the right way. And so we effectively have created this very complex set of data of all the different defects we've seen across mm -hmm. all the different 145 factories globally we've gone off and inspected. And so we now sit on years and years of data, over 25 gigawatts worth of projects. That data sits in our supplier benchmarking program. And so we know how different manufacturers stack up to each other. And we also study the different bombs and the permutations of those bombs. And yeah. so clients come to us now because we are sitting on a lot of data. We actually advise them to do different types of checks based yeah. on the budget that they have based on certain manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And that's something that no one else in the industry has. Yeah. So that's where we're uniquely positioned to really understand quality at a much, much yeah. deeper level. And I'll also say you know, to that point, there is a difference between the work we do and the work that they do. And mm -hmm. one of the things I observed when I was at Trina from the factory floor is anytime an inspector was gonna come, everyone said, okay, get on your guard. You gotta you know, clean up the equipment, make sure everything looks perfect. So the factory's nice and clean create a good experience, you know, answer all the questions, go through the checklist. Then as soon as the, the inspector leaves, everyone just breathes a sigh of relief. He's gone. Anybody who watched the Olympics uh, exactly. in China is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's that same dynamic. So what our philosophy has always been, we have to be there on the factory floor seeing and living their lives on a day-in, day-out basis. Right. That's why we do a lot of 24-7 engagements. You're doing both looking at the day shift and the night shift. And guess no what? Way. You see some facilities where they have 2x the defects at the night shift and the day shift. So what does that say? Well, it says you can't just do daily inspections. You also have to look what happens at the night. Shift, yeah. You also have to look at the fact that there's so many new OEM manufacturers in this industry. Uh -huh. So a lot of folks are sending one inspector from a leading player. They send a uh, you know, there's a four gigawatt player in Vietnam. They send one inspector to go check. You know, we may have two, we may have four. Mm. So once again, the whole trade case and the fact that there is a lot of manufacturers in financial distress, you know, they're trying to cut CapEx. There's a lot of macro forces that have really pushed more and more business to us. Uh, so even though the, on an aggregate level, you see quality levels improving in the yeah. industry, there are many, many examples where quality is still very immature and it's it's inconsistent. And that's what the data shows. I wanna draw an, an analogy that maybe you can help with because modules are one of your strong suits. In the tracker industry, one of the, and you know, Costa, who you're friends with over at Panel Claw, he and I were chatting recently and he said that um, he's gonna come on the show and he said the solar industry is cost out or die. And in the racking industry, the only way additional uh, racking manufacturers have been able to really cost out, um, there's only so much innovation cost out, it's the amount of steel required to, to handle uh, the loads. Uh, so that's where a lot of tracker companies uh, are getting in trouble today. Absolutely. Because uh, they've cost out too much. So that's one area where, you know, Genia at, at Cypress knows very well how to evaluate a tracker company and look at what they've cost out and what their roadmap is and try to identify if they're headed in the right direction and if there's more potential price formation. 
is there a similar analog or, or maybe like one or two bellwethers that somebody ought to look for within the module space when, when buying that would help them understand whether or not a manufacturer is on the up and up or what there are things they might put on their rug? So you can go back in time and look at all the leading companies in the space. In a lot of ways, uh, we all know when you're the number one manufacturer in this in the sector, you're the target on right. your back. That's right. So once again, back in 2000, uh, you know, eight, nine, and ten, SunTech was on the rise and became the, the largest player globally. But guess what? The decision they made in 2009, at the time when the industry is at its you know as low point, they made a bet on GSF, the Global uh-huh. Solar Fund. That was effectively the decision that that killed them in, in the end mm. in 2013. So, once again, the top player, whether it was SunTech or it was Yingli, you know, LDK was another major player. Yeah. Renesola one time was on the up and up. These companies have all gone through a certain amount of financial distress. And I'll definitely say one of the unique, I'd say, value propositions that we have is because our inspectors are in so many different factories. We talk to all the subcomponent suppliers, yeah. and just being in China, where I've, where I've been, and just knowing folks in the industry, I hear things. So people start complaining, oh, so-and-so hasn't paid us in, in nine or 12 months. Well, guess right. what? I start doing a few more channel checks and find out they haven't paid a bunch of suppliers. Right. So we pegged SunTech, Yingli, and, and LDK as, as folks that we right. steered our clients away from those manufacturers in advance of the fall. And so that's some of the things we're always looking for is seeing yeah. who's in financial distress. And you obviously also look to see what manufacturers are up and coming. Yeah. And so it's important to track those trends but at the end of the day, you know, I couldn't pick who's the next uh, who's the next player who's going to be bankrupt. Is there on the on the inverse someone that you would say, "Hey, surprise me! There's a manufacturer that you have no idea is going to be huge, and they're coming." I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to certain manufacturers who are up and coming. I look to see who's embracing technology in a different way, okay? Or what are the technology trends that are coming? Yeah. And so once again, everyone's known about Perk. We've been studying that. Yep. But really going down deep, uh, you know, we were identifying when bifacial was starting to hit certain milestones. But looking at you know at heterojunction, you mm-hmm. know, looking at yep. N-type. Heterojunction and, and, being the hit hit module. Uh, yes. Famously. Yes. Correct. So once again, and one could even say, look. Proscovites, they, they may still be five or 10 years down the road, but you know our team is constantly looking at new technology trends. And that's why we actually have a supplier market intelligence program, which tracks all those trends that are happening in the industry. And so we regularly go and we talk to the R&D labs at these companies, mm-hmm. we meet with the CTOs, the top companies, we look to see what's happening in the industry. So this is one of the ways that we create our own IP. We stay ahead of the curve and try to see where the industries and the companies are, yeah. are reacting. So it's a very, very intelligent and elegant way to sidestep my question. I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if you would take me down the path of like, if I pulled back the curtain in, in China, you know, I'll, I'll note that Risen Energy is one that I've long seen their name at trade shows, and they have recently sort of become a tier one. Mm-hmm. Are there mm-hmm. others like Risen that we might want to keep an eye out? Seraphim is another that in the last two years has come on in the Western region as a credible player who, who else might a developer out there want to keep an eye out for Is yeah it- and, and you know i think the case of risen it's it's interesting because they did so few you know exported modules is mostly for the china market yeah. uh but now they're exporting gigawatts globally and they're expanding quite a bit yeah. Uh, so they're, they're, I agree, they're, they're one of the folks that is, is kind of up and coming. Someone that I, I wouldn't necessarily say is, uh, is commonly thought about, but it's interesting company that could be an up and comer is someone like a Jollywood. 
you know, Jollywood makes a subcomponent. I can't believe it. You, so you it, called out Jollywood. I, I, I took not, a picture making fun of their name. I know. Uh, I know. They are not a leader in terms of branding. Tell me and they're going to rebrand. I, I, you know, there were there are many cases where I saw Yingli back in the day was had to rebrand. Yeah. But you know, Jollywood, I mean, someone who's you know they're they're making a technology bet. You know, they're trying to go down the end type path. You know, they're, what does that mean? they're not someone. Well, so once again, most everyone on the industry is on on P type. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're trying to go through a high efficiency, you know, N type wafer and and create their technology platform uh, that way. Which, you know, once again, there there are pros and cons of that yeah. approach. Uh, they're, it's tantamount they're to introducing perovskite now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, once again, so it's it's a it's. I'm not saying it's a a prediction. It's going to happen the next. Got it. Uh, no, I appreciate months, it. I, but you know. One, uh, one's you did what I asked for. This. I appreciate that. So. I did not expect that anyone would ever mention the name Jollywood in the context of a solar module on Suncast. I never would have thought of it either before a year or two. But you know, they've been someone that that we're looking at. Yeah, I, circle, I circulated the photo of me standing in front of the jo- the empty Jollywood booth <laughs> at Murek. But once uh, again, you know, the, the challenge the challenge with with all manufacturers is they really have to adopt an international team and That's presence right. and, and mechanism. And so yeah. I, I haven't seen Jollywood make that shift just yet. Yeah. Once again, I'm, I know no, 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 no connections right. with, yeah. uh, with Jollywood yeah. and you know, they're, they're one of many manufacturers that's trying to get into the, the top 10 spot. Yeah. But you know, different players are gonna come and go. But yeah. that's one of the things you have to understand though too is that I think in, in today's China, one of the whole themes is there was a one period of time from 05 to 07, everyone their brother tried to come to the US and list on a New York, you know, a major stock That's exchange. Right. Now you're seeing these they're companies delist, right? Mm-hmm. They're privatizing, yeah. and they're going to try to go public in China, in China because the multiples are much higher for these companies. Amazing. So they're going to be able to get more access to capital, yeah. and they're going to have, you know, potentially stronger backers that are going to play that game. Yeah, that was a really smart move by Jifan. So yeah. part of where we add, uh, you know, we add value is really trying to help our clients through these mm-hmm. type of discussions and, mm. and help them think through who do you want to partner with. But it's also the reality is China, like a lot of emerging markets, it's a relationship-based culture. So we highly advocate that folks actually go to where the headquarters are. You have to make the investment to build yeah. those executive-level yeah. relationships. Because sometimes things do go haywire, and we can only do how, so how much. How big of a company do you need to be before you think about making a trip to China? Oh, I, I think it's just it's great supply chain one-on-one training for for anyone who's who's doing you know just at least a, you know, a few utility-scale projects. You know, if you're buying 100 megawatts or more, it's important for you to start to understand mm-hmm. a lot more about quality and understand how your products are being made. But look, there's there's plenty of folks who come who are not at that level. That's right. And there's plenty of folks who buy hundreds of megawatts and have never, never been, been to the headquarters. It's or seen a manufacturing facility. Uh, we think that's a shame. So yeah. it's it's amazed me. You know, in my interaction with with dozens and dozens, hundreds of companies, mm. there still are a lot of immature companies that really don't take the time to study supply chain. So the companies that really get it. Their CEOs are in supply chain, mm-hmm. advanced supply chain discussions with myself and other industry professionals. They're really going to a level of detail that shows me they've done their homework. And so once again, the companies that have that knowledge at the C-level, you better believe their head of supply chain knows a lot more. And so yeah. it's extremely important to get that level of detail. Because solar is an overly simplified industry yeah. by a lot of mm-hmm. you know, comparisons, but it's the small things that will really kill you. Yeah. So, you know, if you're in storage, you're tracking the price of cobalt and copper. If you're in refrigeration, you're tracking the price of raw materials. What surprises you that when you find solar companies not thinking about the price of like what commodities should solar leaders be thinking about as to how they impact the ultimate price of our products? 
So that question is very different today than it was a decade ago. Yeah. And so once again, as you know, when polysilicon was at $500 a kilo, yeah. that was 90% of the cost. So if you look at solar today, solar modules that is, you know, there is not really one component that just stands out that could blow it up, yeah. And so I think the the value chain is is completely different. You know, obviously when you look at, at racking, you know, you gotta look at the metal, right? So you know, a it's deficiency a, a, in, a deficiency for across like a, a mass deficiency in glass production, for example, couldn't couldn't draw down. I mean, glass is a, a commodity product, so it, it's not going to mm -hmm. go through a massive swing mm -hmm. in pricing that's going to change the uh, right. Every, pricing. Everyone's using silver paste, but it's so small in terms of the bomb. It used to silver... be as much as uh, nine or ten cents a watt. Yeah. So you know, back in the day when silver pricing spiked, I think circa mm -hmm. 2011, 2012, then uh, then yeah, you did see a pricing go up to twelve cents a watt, and that was a meaningful jump. So let's we'll switch away from modules then, as you guys are becoming known in the energy storage space, what are you advising your clients to keep an eye out for? What are they watching? So we absolutely are advising going through and, and being very, very thorough on, on doing your, your channel checks and seeing who are the different manufacturers, not just of module packs or modules, but right. also looking upstream onto the sell side. Yeah. So there's a lot of integrators that are out you know, trying to build up a, a large presence. Some are very well capitalized. You know, Our view, we think that the smartest developers and IPPs and owners of these systems they're going to start going and buying direct. They're going to start uh, specifying uh, what cells that they want. And battery understand. cells. For those. Yeah, battery yeah. cells, correct. Mm -hmm. um, and and really going to a lot more depth on the supply chain. Yeah. So we actually see there there's going to be a major change in terms of how the industry delivers value around energy storage. So that's where you know we feel like that's that's. Are you going all the way change. up to the mine level and? So at the, at the mine level, it's it's a little more, a uh, little little less. I, I think. Pertinent. I think a lot happens at the cell level. That's the most important. So, procure, so back in the day, like SunTech procurement contracts for polysilicon were important knowledge to have as an investor. You don't feel like a lithium supply, cobalt supply is important to know about. If so, as uh, as you know, co unfortunately, cobalt. Uh, you know, there's some there's some challenges in terms of where of cobalt is mined from. So you know that when you have to deal with the conflict mineral mm -hmm. discussion, like that, that has a, a factor. And so, folks that are you know, involved with uh, you know NMC technology, yep. they they you know one should look to see and ask those questions. But once again, to do the right checks and and to go the due diligence where you go all the way to the mine level, that's not necessarily needed. Okay. You know, same way that you know we didn't necessarily do polysilicon checks back in the day, but we did do you know very very detailed bomb rigorous mm. bomb analysis okay. and look uh, you know further upstream. But we weren't necessarily checking all the sources of uh, of that raw material. Mm. Okay. Sorry, I had to bounce back into technical mode because I just I. It's a fascinating topic. Have, I, I could go on for hours. I, I know, and you have so much, such a wealth of knowledge around what is out there, what's available, what people are doing, and I don't want to, I don't want to miss that. But I also, uh, you know, recognize that that knowledge is gleaned through years of study, years of being there, present, building specific knowledge. Another way to build specific knowledge is through. The personal education of reading, reading books. I believe that readers are leaders and that leaders are readers. I understand that you have a particular penchant for reading as well. Would you like to give the Suncast listener a glimpse into the, the fascinating world of what you find interesting for reading? What book uh, are you giving away the most? Absolutely. I would definitely say Scaling Up, we uh, give away the most uh, yep. by Vern it's Harnish. Fantastic. So we have uh, a bunch of copies in my office and mm -hmm. I, I give them away like water to my, my team and we we do practice a lot of the scaling up uh, methodology. Yeah, so uh, everything from a, 
from the daily huddle to, you know, to ongoing communication. I do monthly all hands meetings with my team. We have folks in different time zones. So yeah. typically I do, uh, you know, an afternoon session with the Asian team, and then I'll I'll stay up at night to get the the U.S. and uh, and European teams yeah. on calls. But it's very important to have that ongoing communication, both up and down the organization. I feel believe that firmly. Hmm. But the book that I would say I, I've been reading, and I think is most interesting to your audience of solar entrepreneurs and just entrepreneurs in general, is Your Oxygen Mask First from Kevin Lawrence. Hmm. And I've uh, I've read some, or I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, so I don't think this book's been mentioned. It hasn't. But uh, I like Kevin's guideline. He talks about 17 different attributes of leaders. And I think one of the basic premise that was a new idea to me is that, you know, before the whole notion, just like it sounds on the, on the title, you know, before you put the auction mask on your child or the person sitting next to you, you have to put it on yourself first. And so that's important as, as entrepreneurs, we sometimes get so engrossed in what we do uh, and just do a deep dive and just keep going, going, going. We have to take a step back and say, I need to have some semblance of balance. You know, I need to have broader perspective. And let me stop and let me start to be a little selfish and do some of the things that I want to do. So one of the things mm -hmm. I did this summer, I climbed three 14ers in Colorado. Nice. And it was, uh, it was my first time doing three in a week. They struggled, but I barely made massive. it. Um, but I took two full days off from my uh, my vacation with my family, and I'm glad I did that. Yeah. And my wife, uh, you know, she had the good, uh, you know, the good patience to let me go. Going to deal with four young girls, but um, mm. you know, I hope to be at a stage where I can climb with them one day. So once again, that was something that uh, you know I intend to continue to do, and I think that was one of the things I, I took away from Kevin's book. That's fantastic. Thank you for those. What habit or consistent practice has the greatest impact on your life? Absolutely, daily meditation. When I'm not traveling, I love to wake up at 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. and start with a meditation. Just calm myself, calm my mind. Mm. Right before there I bed? do anything. Uh, no, I, I, I get out of bed, I go to my office, but before I look at my phone, before I answer emails, I do that first thing. Same place I, every day, I, I do, in the same I, spot? Same spot every day. I write, I, I do two things. Before I meditate, I write, what was my, what was the happiest moment I had the day before? Perfect, gratitude. And so gratitude is extremely important. So I have my gratitude list. Mm -hmm. I write in a journal. I've been a, an active journal writer ever since I was in, in high school. Yeah. And so that's something I- Do you I, go back and read it? I do from time to time. So I have, I have dozens of books that of I've written throughout my lifetime. Yeah. All just, you know, informal scribble, yeah. but, but uh, that's something I, I do enjoy doing. But I, starting with meditation allows me to kind of start my day and then I go about making my plan and by 6:15, 6:30, you know, usually the first girl wakes up, and then I'm, uh, I'm there when I'm, uh, be an active dad and a husband as much as I can until I, I go to work, and then I, I, I try to make sure to be very rigid about keeping family time to the family. So that's, um, that's very important. That's something that we have as entrepreneurs and just business leaders. You have to think in the bigger scheme of things. What are you trying to do? Mm -hmm. You know, part of what we're trying to do at, at CA is to, uh, to create a better future. But we have to remember our future is around us. You know, and yeah. so we have to take care of friends and family. They're the folks that, that really matter most. That is beautiful. Well, for those who'd like to be in that friend circle, how would they find you? How would the folks reach out to you if they've been inspired by this episode and they want to chat with you further? Uh, so I don't check LinkedIn every day, but uh, that's I usually every, every other day I am uh, usually check on LinkedIn. So that's the best way to reach out mm -hmm. to me. But for anyone who knows China, uh, WeChat is uh, by far the most common uh, way to reach me. So uh, easy to find on WeChat. I'm not familiar uh, I'm, with how my to handles find a clump. Uh, a K L U M P. A K L U M P. So, Got it. Uh, but LinkedIn's probably best for most Western audiences. Got it. And I'll link to that in the show notes for sure. For those who may have missed it, uh, Clean Energy Associates is Andy's company. What's the website? CleanEnergyAssociates.com. 
we also have the, the URL cea3.com, but mm -hmm. uh, both are fine. Very well. Cleanenergyassociates.com. We'll link to all those fancy resources on the website. If you had a selfish ask, is there some way the Suncast audience can help Andy or CEA? I would just say you know, to your listeners, uh, you know, once again, this is, a, this is an amazing time in the solar industry. You know, solar and storage are going to continue to be the, the dominant form of energy, I think, for many decades to yeah. come. So do your homework with, you know, and it doesn't have to be with CEA, it could be with anyone, but just do your homework with what, you know, what, you're, what you're procuring. You know, it's extremely important to always uh, do your due diligence know you know who you're buying from and don't just make decisions based on relationships or, or feelings you know do it based on data and so that's where you know we are we are very big at uh you know i'm from from missouri so it's the show me state so i whenever someone has a claim i like show, show me, me you know show me I the love data that. so it right it's, back uh, to your roots. it's extremely important absolutely very very well well andy Let's end today with a bold prediction, as we always do. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? So I, I definitely, as I said before, I believe there's going to be a point in time where uh, energy is effectively free mm -hmm. because we have so much solar that's producing during the day. So I think we're going to come across that within the next decade. So that's why solar and storage is a very important combination. And uh, so we believe very firmly that, uh, that having that knowledge and expertise to, to be able to deal with that uh, future scenario is, uh, is important. Andy Klump, you're a leader in our industry and a visionary and someone who has gone through uncharted waters and uh, we are all benefiting from that wisdom. Thank you for sharing on Suncast. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, all right, Solar Warrior, what you think of that conversation, huh? Andy Klump, man, he is, uh, what, what an awesome and inspiring figure to have been involved in the ways that he has with our industry. I just love hanging out with him. And if you ever saw Andy, as I mentioned, he is a tall drink of water. You can't miss him in the middle of a trade show. You know, if you think he stands out here in America, you should see him among the uh, the Asian crowd. It, it, it is a sight to behold. Listen, did you learn something today? Would you share it with me? What was your major takeaway? Find me on Twitter. It's at Nico, M-E-O, N-I-C-O-M-E-O, or on LinkedIn. And please share what you learned. And your five-star review and subscription in iTunes is certainly huge. Thank you for that. Hey, Alexa, what's the latest episode of the Suncast podcast? <laughs> well, Alexa might be able to tell you what the current episode is, but you'll only hear about the next one by listening to this. Around uh, college, I started noticing that certain people on my street didn't recycle, and so I started helping them understand how easy it was. If you listened to the SPI preview episode, then you might recognize the voice of the dynamo of women in clean tech and sustainability herself, Ms. Lisa Ann Pinkerton of Technica Communications. And she's on deck for next week's Suncast. It's not only info-packed, but full of laughs. I hope you'll stick around. Come back next week for more. You know, the fact you're still listening tells me that you really do value this work. And if that's true, I'm wondering if you would like to connect with me on the inside of our members area, our solar tribe. You could go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to learn more. At least you could join the newsletter while you're there. So you won't need to rely on Alexa for knowing when the next episode comes out. Because I'll tell you, I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle. <laughs> <laughs>